Father, I pray for this time now. I thank you for your word, which is true. I pray, Lord, that it would fall on soft hearts, and I pray they would produce much fruit in Jesus' name. I thank you for what you've already done in the worship, what you've already begun speaking by your Spirit, and I just pray that this would be reinforced now by the word that I'm about to preach, and that your Spirit would bring liberty and freedom to every heart in this place. In Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I've been uh, just so excited this week as I've been preparing, and I'd like to speak to you this morning about our preferred future. Our preferred future. I'm talking about us as a congregation. And I think for me, I'm 46, turning 47 now in uh, April. And one of the things that when you're a little bit older is that you have to start realizing and addressing the mistakes of your youth and uh, all that's gone before you. And I think sometimes when you're a little bit older, your mistakes can be chains around your legs and chains around your heart and chains around your thinking. And uh, I felt God speak to me this week and say, if we are going to move into the preferred future that he has for us as a church, then living free of past success and living free of past failure are absolutely vital. Because if we can't live free of our mistakes and we can't live in the grace of God and we're always chained to the mistakes we made, we're never going to be free. So I want to encourage you. Maybe you're 20 and you feel like you're just on your, beginning your adventure. Well, that's cool. Maybe you're a little bit older like me and you've kind of had something of your adventure and you've made some mistakes along the way. Don't let that hold you back, what God has for you. So I want to ask you this morning, what are we aiming for as a church? Uh, this current reality that we see right now, is this as good as it gets? Is this it? Thank you. <laughs> Do our dreams for this community seem so far off and perhaps so big or so difficult to achieve that they stop us from step, stepping out of the boat? We, we're just a little cautious because it seems too wonderful. It seems too magnificent that God would want to do something amazing through this church into the community. It just seems too good to be true, and we're too scared to believe it. And so we don't step out of the boat. I want to encourage you this morning that Jesus is faithful. And if you step out of the boat together with him, and he's calling you onto the water. He's going to catch you if you fall. It's like Peter. He's going to do it. And so I want to encourage you this morning. I, I was reading in my devotions this week a number of things. And Proverbs twenty four sixteen says an amazing thing. It says, a righteous man may fall seven times, but he rises again. And that's God's promise to us. Despite the good things of the past, despite the failures of the past, a righteous man will rise seven times. And in the scripture, seven is always a picture of perfection. It means simply he will rise again and again and again, and he will not be held down. Amen? And so I was just thinking and reflecting of the great, some of the great characters in, in the biblical narrative that are, are great encouragements to us. Think about, think about Moses. I was reading Exodus again this week. Moses comes from an, an imperfect family. How, have you, how many of you here come from imperfect families? All of us. <laughs> he comes from an imperfect family. He comes from a broken family. He comes from a dysfunctional family. He's, he's put in a basket, for goodness sake, and he's, he's put into the river. And then he's found by an Egyptian, and he's, 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 he's raised up in a foster home. He doesn't know his parents. And you know, we're, I've mentioned um, uh, the movie... Um, King's speech a number of times, but in that movie they said that when you have a traumatic, tra traumatic uh, experience as a child, often it manifests as a, as a stammer. And what do we know about Moses? He stammered. He was traumatized. He didn't have a comfortable childhood, and yet, and he was a violent man. He had a violent temper, couldn't control his temper, and you know, he murdered the Egyptian, and yet God chooses him 
to lead his people out of slavery into the promised land. Man, doesn't that inspire you? God uses imperfect murderers for his kingdom. Amen. What about Joseph, the arrogant teenager, also from a broken family, hated by his brothers, hated so much that he sold into slavery by his own family. Can you imagine the rejection in a person sold into slavery by your flesh and blood? Unjustly accused of rape. To this day, he hasn't been exonerated from that charge. Rapist. And then yet the power of God in his life, this amazing interpreter of dreams, and, and he starts to hear God, even in the prison, even in the, in the dungeon, he hears God, and he speaks what God tells him, and the amazing thing is this, the process of God in his life liberates him out of the prison, and he becomes the prime minister, and not only the savior of Egypt, those that have enslaved him, but the savior of his own people who sent him into slavery. God uses broken people for his purposes. Oh, it's wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful. What about Peter? John 14, you can read his story but when he um, called out to walk on the water. Peter, this confident man in his own flesh, this bold man in some ways, this brash, arrogant man, and he's, he's quick to just do things and respond without thinking. And yet he's bold at the same time and he, he gets out onto the water and Jesus calls him and he starts to walk and then he takes his eyes off Jesus begins to fall. But at least he tries. And this bold guy at the same time is frightened little child on the inside of his heart because when it comes to the crunch and he's, he's, he's uh, around the fire and they ask him, do you know this man, Jesus? He, he runs. He says, no, I don't. And yet Jesus takes that very man who's denied him and builds his church upon the revelation that he gives him. Isn't that incredible? Don't let your past failures drag you down. What about Paul? I was thinking about Paul, the aristocratic, zealous, zealous Pharisee, the Jew of Jews, the top end of the pile. Paul, he says it of himself. An intellectual giant. I mean, he's got a brain like very few of us have. And he's also got a consuming hatred for the church. He hates the people of the way, as they are called. And it turns him into a persecutor. All his intellectual uh, power, all his zeal, is focused on killing Christians. He hates them. And on the way, on the road, God supremely just intervenes in his life and he says, I choose you. Amazing. And the people that he's persecuted and killed and hated, they become his closest friends. It's the power of the gospel. Oh God, say this to me. Failing at things doesn't make you a failure. Quitting at what God's called you to do makes you a failure. And I feel like maybe some of us have given up on some of God's dreams for our lives because it just seemed so hard. I want to encourage you this morning, get up. I want to encourage you in the gospel, get up. Whatever the, the, the mistakes of the past are, the failures of the past, God still wants to use you in an amazing way for his kingdom.
And I want to say to you, I feel like we are standing on a cliff, all of us as this church community. We are standing on a cliff this morning, hearing over the edge. And I want to say to you that I believe the, the cliff's edge is an invitation from God to join him in a great unknown adventure. <laughs> I'm asking you, will you jump this morning? Will you jump with many others this morning? Will you, knowing that it's nerve-wracking, knowing that it's dangerous, knowing that you don't, can't see the next step, will you jump? Or will you hesitate because it's uncertain? Because you might feel, well, I just don't have the energy for another adventure. And so you hold back. If that's what you feel this morning, I want to encourage you, I want to say this to you, that the gospel comes to us by grace. It comes to us by grace through faith. And the journey that we walk with Jesus every single day of our lives is by grace through faith. That is it. That's how we walk. It is never certain. <laughs> it is never fully certain. We're, that's why we need faith. Because if it was certain, and there was no doubt, there would be no need for faith. There would no need to, no need to exercise trust in Jesus and say, Jesus, right now in my moment of doubt, I choose to trust you with my future. I can't see it, but I choose to trust you right now. That's the gospel. Amen. And we all know that the word clearly says, without faith it's impossible to please God. But it's the certainty of what we cannot yet see. I've spoken about the third chapter. Well, I feel like the cliff's edge is an invitation for all of us to come and enjoy this third chapter with God for this church community. And I believe Jill's picture, I was so excited when she sent me that email this week, because I believe Jill's picture is something of that third chapter for this church. It is. It's God's prophetic promise to us. And now I want to ask you, do you want to embark on this adventure? I can't force any of you to embark on this venture. It only happens as you give your heart and say, yes, I believe you, Jesus. And I want to ask you, whose report will you believe this morning? Will you believe the prophetic voice over this church? Or will you believe the cynics like Caleb? had to come up against those that went into the promised land, the ten spies, and they came back and said, oh, no, it's just too hard. It's just, oh, there's just giants everywhere. And Caleb and Joshua said, no, no, we see past that. We see what God has, and we declare his goodness over this land. Who will you believe this morning? Who will you choose to believe? Will you choose to believe the voices that just say, oh, it's too hard, it's too much work, it's too difficult? Or will you choose to believe the prophetic voice of God that says he has a destiny for this community and this church is a part of that destiny for this community? It's not the only church, but it is a part of this plan that he has for this community. I want to ask you to look around you this morning. It's a great facility. I think it's a, it's a great facility. Would you agree? Many people, some of who, who are part of this church, some, some have moved on and relocated, like Dom and Annie have gone to Canada and and uh, Len and Honey have gone to Hong Kong. Many people sacrificed much for this to happen. That's a beautiful thing. I think God loves that. It's because they had a dream in their hearts. They had a dream that God placed there. And it was because of the dream that God placed there that they were able to sacrifice and they were able to give and they, uh, they were able to go without in order to see this thing happen for other people who they actually aren't even going to know. Isn't that amazing? Glenn and Honey in Hong Kong perhaps will never know everyone that comes into this church because of what they gave. That's heavenly treasure, isn't it? 
And they had a dream. Every single one of them had a dream that this community, this city, this nation could be different because and could be changed because of this community of faith. This community of faith could have an impact and impact the whole nation. That's what we were audacious enough to believe. <laughs> Is it audacious? Yes. Was it impossible? No, because we are now living in something of it. But without God, those kind of dreams are both foolish and impossible. <laughs> but with Him, all things are possible. And I want to say to you, I absolutely am convinced that the baton is being handed on to a generation of people that will t- willingly take it and run another lap. It's not going to be the same people. It's going to be some of the same people, some of the other, some will be new people. And perhaps if you have joined this church in this, in this last year, you're part of that generation that's going to take it on. And that's absolutely wonderful. We've, we've uh, made a transition into this community. We've moved from Watford to St. Albans. We're continuing to be more rooted here, and there are many things that are, we're excited about in terms of some of the projects that God is, is opening up. And this church is, is, is now, I want to say this with faith in my heart, there's a glass ceiling over this church. You want to know what it's called? It's called the 200 barrier. It's a real thing. There are many churches that never manage to break through the 200 barrier. It is a glass ceiling. You know why it's a glass ceiling? Because when the church is about 200, it's a nice big family, isn't it? And everyone knows each other. And it's this this feeling of community. And that's a beautiful thing. And we can all speak to each other. We know each other's names. And it's kind of, it's beautiful. It's wonderful. And for the church to grow beyond that, and I think... God does want to grow this church beyond that so the community can change, not for the sake of numbers, but because the community needs to change. This is what has to happen. Not only my leadership style and the elders who lead this church together with us in this team, not only our leadership style needs to change, but some of your expectations as a congregation and your aspirations as a congregation also have to change. And I want to say to you, it's a mutual thing. Unless we change and unless the, com- the congregation is prepared to change, we will always shrink back to the nice, comfortable family. That's the reality. And I want, I want to say that God wants to grow this church so that many can come and taste the grace of God that is freely lavished on every single one of us. And that requires for us as a congregation to keep our hearts open to every single person that comes through these doors. So I want to say to you, in a growing church, and I believe this church is going to grow, in a growing church, you will not be able to know everybody by name. And I want to ask you this morning, it probably might feel a little bit less like a family when the church starts to grow. Are you prepared to make the adjustment in your heart? Because if you don't, we will shrink back to what the current reality is. Secondly, I want to say, God has promised to set the lonely in families. That's one of the original promises that God gave this church, that it would be a blessing to this community and you'd set the lonely in families. And I believe God wants to set many lonely people into this family. If that is to be so, I want to ask you this question. Are you prepared to commit to a life group that people can love you like a family? You see, as the church grows bigger, it also has to grow smaller, that people can get to know you. Are you prepared to make the adjustment and commit yourself to a life group? Or are you going to remain on the outside looking in, always feeling part of but not quite part of because the reality of people getting to know you 
you can only do so much on a Sunday. Are you with me? My friends, this, unless we repent of these mindsets, unless we change, allow God to change us by the power of the Spirit, the future of this church looks pretty much the same as its present reality is. A couple of hundred people that genuinely love each other. God does some stuff with us, but that's what it, all that it remains. I want to say to you that in a growing church, you might not be able to be involved in every single decision that's made. One of the characteristics of local churches that are small is that everyone likes to be involved in the decision-making process or want to talk about it for ages and ages and ages, and then very few people actually do the ministry. (laughs) But everyone wants to be involved in the decision-making process. In larger churches, fewer people make the decisions, more people do the ministry. Are we prepared to make the adjustment? I'm asking you honestly, and I'm not, this is not with an ounce of compulsion in my heart. I promise you that I've prayed this week for God to help me to communicate this effectively. Pict- uh, Petri had a, a picture as we were praying on Tuesday of a, a big railway station with multiple tracks. And that, up until now, the story of this church has been a single track. And yet God was bringing us to a junction where there are multiple tracks leading out of this station. And the multiple tracks speak of many different things. And as the church grows, there are going to be many different things that you can give yourself to. And not everyone is going to be on the same single track. There are going to be multiple things that God is going to do. That is a very exciting thing because it means that the gift that you have, you can exercise in a growing church. Amen. That's part of the priesthood of all believers. I want to say to you thirdly, fourthly, whatever it is, I can't remember now. In a growing church, God will continually ask and require of you that you are more outward focused than inward focused. God will require of every single one of us that we are more concerned to meet the needs of others than we are just to meet our own needs and our own friendship needs. And that means every face that walks through this door that you don't know, it's your and our responsibility to love on those people and say, we welcome you. That's the responsibility of a growing church or else we will shrink back into a holy little huddle of about 200 and love each other to death. I've already spoken about the 600 chairs. I, I, I trust that that picture will inspire you to pray. That those stacked chairs will come out and be used and we will have people sitting on them who get saved by the power of the gospel. Amen? I want to prophesy that today, and I want to ask you that you prophesy with me. Prophesy life. This church has many small groups, life groups, ladies groups, building blocks, worship teams. All these things are wonderful things, and many of them are full of life and full of friendship, and I celebrate that together with you with all of my heart. That is the good part of church community. We hang out together. We laugh together. It's fantastic. The underlying question for me is this. Do those groups, exist, those groups exist for us and for our friendship needs, or do they exist to God for God to use as a vehicle to reach out into a broken community and it can be a manifestation of His gospel and His love for a broken community? I choose to believe that the second is, is the reason. Of course our friendship needs are met in small groups, but ultimately they exist for people that are not even there yet. They exist for people still to be saved in. And I want to ask you with all of my heart this morning that if this church is to grow, it needs to have some people who are prepared to say, yes, I will sacrifice some of my friendship needs 
for the sake of unsaved people, and I will choose to multiply this small group into the community. And yes, my friendship need might not be met uh, as intimately as it has been, but I'm going to do this for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of others. So I'm asking you, are there people here that are brave enough to say, I will multiply a home group, small group? Or else we just stay as we are. <laughs> or else we just say, well, this is, this is actually as good as it gets, and it's wonderful, we all know each other, and let's just stay here. Let's just camp here and um, be like this for the next 10 years. I'm aware of this. I can motivate and try and motivate a number of, a couple of ways. I can try and paint some vision and say Jesus is our vision, the gospel is our vision. I can encourage us all towards that vision, and I think that's a necessary part of it. I could also try and motivate you by just telling you how desperate things are outside in the world and how many needs there are that need to be met. I could put some pictures up, some videos up of, of, uh, of people in Africa that are starving and uh, the tsunami that's just happened in Japan and, and ask you to, to give your money and give your prayers. And, and I think, you know, it would work for a while. But I, I found this, that guilt and motivating people from an emotional place never lasts. Unless the motivation is in the heart, it never, ever lasts. Unless it's a revelation of the gospel, and it's never, unless it's a revelation of the grace of God in people's lives, it never motivates for very long. So I believe the key is this. I believe the key lies, the answer lies in what God has already been doing in the last couple of years. He's been restoring some things to this church. He's been restoring the heart, the breadth, and the depth, and the love of Christ into our hearts. He's been, he's, he's been restoring the truth of his gospel once again to us, that we need to be those that are fully rooted in Christ, fully planted in family, in order that we can be fruitful into the world and fruitful into the community. That's what the gospel, gospel does. That's the journey of the gospel for every single one of us. It's the story of a loving father restoring sons to himself. That's what's the story of. And so I want to affirm a couple of basic things to you this morning, and I want to affirm them to you in the gospel. I believe these things with all of my heart, and I'm nailing my colors to the mast this morning. I'm going to read some things to you from this amazing book. If this, if, if other, outside of this, the Bible, if you read this one book this year, I want to encourage you to read this, every single one of you. It's called The Prodigal God by Tim Keller. It'll change your life. It will. It's just the gospel. That's all it is, but it will change your life. I'm asking you to buy this book and read this book. Andy, for the book table, let's get 50 copies of this. I believe this. I want to affirm in the gospel the habit of meeting together. I want to affirm in the gospel the habit of meeting together every single week. Not once a month. Every single week. Am I putting law on you? No, I'm not. Let me read something to you. This has become more and more of a reality to me the longer I've been involved in church leadership. Jesus, this, is the, this book is based around the parable of the prodigal son or the prodigal God or whatever you want to call it, the parable of the two lost sons. And it says this, this chapter. Jesus uses the younger and elder brothers to portray two basic ways people try to find happiness and fulfillment. The way of moral conformity and the way of self-discovery. Each acts as a lens according to how you see all of life 
was a paradigm shaping your understanding of everything. Each is a way of finding personal significance and worth, of addressing the ills of the world and determining right from wrong. The elder brother in the parable illustrates the way of moral conformity. The Pharisees of Jesus' day believed that while they were a people chosen by God, they could only maintain their place in his blessing and receive final salvation through strict obedience to the Bible. There are innumerable varieties of this paradigm, but they all believe in putting the will of God as the standard of the community ahead uh, and the, the standard of the community ahead of individual fulfillment. In this view, we only attain happiness and the world is made right by achieving moral rectitude. We may fall at times, of course, but then we will be judged by how abject and intense our regret is. In other words, our repentance. In this view, even our failures, in, even in our failures, we must, we must always measure up. So there's this kind of sense of moral conformity, trying to do the right thing, living with that worldview, all right? The younger brother in the parable illustrates the way of self-discovery. In ancient patriarchal cultures, some took this route, but there are far more who do this today. This paradigm holds that individuals must be free to pursue their own goals and self-actualization regardless of customs, conventions. In this view, the world would be a far better place if tradition, prejudice, hierarchical authority, and other barriers that were against personal freedom were weakened or removed. So, oh, we don't need any, any kind of hierarchy. We all just walk by the Spirit and are free to discover God's grace for our lives. That's the other paradigm. The younger brother takes his inheritance now. says, I want it now. I'm going to find my own way forward. These two ways of life and their inevitable clash are vividly depicted in a classic movie called Witness. I'm not going to read the illustration. But then he says this. Our Western society is so deeply divided between these two approaches that hardly anyone can conceive of any other way to live. <laughs> Either you're in the moralist camp or you're in the personal freedom camp. If you criticize or distance yourself from one, everyone assumes that you've automatically chosen to follow the other. Because of these approaches, we tend to divide the whole world into two basic moral groups. The moral conformists say, the immoral people, people who do their own thing, are the, they're the problem in the world. And moral people are the solution. The advocates of self-discovery say, the bigoted people, the people who say, we have the truth. They are the problem in the world. And progressive liberal people are the solution. Each side says, our way in the, world, in the, is in the way of the world will put to right. And if you are not with us, you are against us. Are we to conclude that everyone falls into one or two, either of those two categories? Yes and no. A great number of people have temperaments that propose, dispose them to either a life of moral conformity or of self-discovery. Some, however, go backwards and forwards, trying one strategy first and then another in a different season of their lives. Many have tried the moral conformity paradigm, found it crushed them, and in a dramatic turn, turned into a life of self-discovery. Others are on the opposite trajectory. Despite these variations, there are still two primary responses, approaches to living. The message of Jesus, his parable, is that both of these approaches is wrong. 
Both is wrong. And his parable illustrates a radical alternative. The gospel is radically different to other of those. So, individualism on the one hand, conformity to tradition on the other. I want to say to you, I've seen those two mindsets played out in church. You don't want to know how it's played out in church? It's played out like this. We are the word guys on the one hand, and there's another bunch of guys who say, no, no, we're the Holy Spirit guys. We want freedom. We want freedom. The others say, no, let's preach the word. Preach the word. So even in church, we have these two camps. People on the one hand who say they're word people. People on the other hand who say they're spirit people. Or you can put it like this. People who like more structure. People who like more freedom. In the same church. It's played out over and over and over again. I love worship. I love preaching. That's what it is. It's these two basic approaches to life. Well, I believe we are free in the gospel. (laughs) I believe we are absolutely free in the gospel. I believe that our freedom, God gives us our freedom to to serve others. And it's not just for our personal fulfillment. It's not just for my personal journey. Our freedom in God leads us into church community. We are free in Christ. No one can force you to be here on a Sunday. No one can force you to meet together with other believers. But I want to say this to you. Surely, as a believer, you want to meet with other believers. If you love Jesus, surely you are keen and want to be part of loving his church, expressing his bride. You know when when Paul is challenged on the road to Damascus? What does Jesus say to him? He says, why are you persecuting me? Who had he been persecuting up until that point? The church. Jesus makes it quite clear. You love him, you love his church. I want to affirm the habit of meeting together. In fact, I want to say this to you. The writer of the Hebrews makes a direct correlation between the, he says exactly this thing that I'm trying to say to you. You know what the amazing thing is? It's in the light of the gospel. It's a great therefore moment in the Bible. Remember we talked about therefore moments? And if you read Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12, I think it is, he says this. It starts with the therefore. He says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way that he opened us through the curtain and through his flesh, since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from every evil conscience and our body washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And I've heard that quoted so many times. And then people stop there. And you know what? The writer of the Hebrews, he carries on in the next breath and he says, And let us consider in the light of this great gospel, in the light of the fact that we can boldly enter into a place of grace, in the light of this gospel, let us spur each other on, stir each other up to love, and stir each other up to good works, not neglecting the habit of meeting together as some are in doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. It's in the light of the gospel that we get together. Not because I'm asking you, but because of Jesus, this amazing gospel, this revelation of grace. So I want to affirm the habit of meeting together, both in small groups and as saints on a Sunday. I want to say both of those are important. But I want to say the meeting of the church on the Sunday is the most important. A life group is not church. It ain't church. You can listen to a podcast and that's a good thing. 
You can go out and preach on the streets and that's a good thing. It's not church. This is church. A community of believers, not individuals. A community, the Bible is always about community. And we have this great fight that we have to fight as Christians. Individualism versus community. The Bible is always about more than me. It is about all of us together. That's the picture. That's why I said to you this morning that one of the greatest celebrations that the Bible has in terms of the church is a meal together. Do you know that's what the Bible says at the end of all time? We're going to have a feast together. It's going to be a wedding banquet where every single saved person that has ever been is going to be in God's presence. We're going to be enjoying a meal together. Community. Now, I am frothing. I'm sorry. If we can't make this simple transition, my friends, if we can't make this transition in our heads and in our hearts, the future of this church looks pretty much the same as it is now. I want to read another little portion, and it's not a long one. It's it's shorter than the last one. It talks about the wedding feast. Feasting is is communal by nature. No reunion, family gathering, wedding, or other significant social event is complete without a meal. I'm so happy about that. I love eating. When we invite someone to eat with us, it's an invitation to relax a bit and get to know one another. In many cultures, to offer to eat with someone is to offer them friendship. The same thing. We live in a culture in which the interests of and desires of the individual take precedence over those of a family or group or community. As a result, a high percentage of people want to achieve spiritual growth without losing their independence to the church or to any organized institution. This is often the meaning of behind the common phrases like, I'm spiritual, but not religious. Or, I like Jesus, but not Christianity. Many people who are spiritually searching have had bad experiences with the church. How many of you have had a bad experience with the church? I've had many. Anyone else here had a bad experience with the church? Yep, so we all have. We're all in the same boat. So they won't have nothing to do with the church. They are interested in a relationship with God, but not if they have to be part of any organization. I've explained in this book why churches and religious institutions are often so unpleasant. And this is because they are filled with older brothers. Older brothers? People that are moral conformists. They just say, do this, do that. doesn't matter if you walk by the Spirit. You just do these things. You know what that produces in the people? Judgmentalism, backbiting, fighting. Older brothers. Yet staying away from churches simply because they have elder brothers is just another form of self-righteousness. It's profound. Basically saying, I'm better than you. I don't need you. Self-righteousness. Besides that, there's no way you'll be able to grow spiritually apart from a deep involvement in a community of other believers. You cannot live the Christian life without a band of Christian friends. Without a family of believers in which you find your place. T.S. Lewis was part of a famous circle of friends called the Inklings. Everyone heard of the Inklings in Oxford? Which included Tolkien, the author of Lord of the Rings, and also a guy called Charles Williams who died unexpectedly after World War II. In his book, The Four Loves, Lewis wrote a striking meditation on his death. 
in an essay called Friendship. A little, little extract, I'm going to conclude with this. T.S. Lewis says this, In each of my friends, there's something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I'm not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I want other lights than my own to show all his facets. Now that Charles Williams is dead, I shall never see Ronald's, that's Tolkien's, reaction to specifically Charles' joke. Far, far from having more of Ronald, having him to myself now that Charles is away, I have less of Ronald. In this, friendship exhibits a glorious nearness by resemblance to heaven itself, where the very multitude of the blessed, which no man can number, increases the fruition which each of us has of God. For every soul, seeing him in her own in him or her in, in their own way, doubtless communicates the unique vision to all the rest. That, says an old author, is why the seraphs, seraphim in Isaiah's vision are crying, holy, holy, holy to one another. The more we share the heavenly bread between us, the more we, sh- we shall have him. Lewis is saying that it took a community to know an individual. How much more would this be true of Jesus Christ? Christians commonly say they want a relationship with Jesus, that they want to get to know Jesus better, but you will never be able to do that by yourself. You must be deeply involved in the church, in Christian community, with strong relationships of love and accountability, only if you are part of a community of believers seeking to resemble, serve, and love Jesus will you ever get to know Him and grow into His likeness. I affirm meeting together. I affirm the church. I affirm the beautiful bride of the living Lord Jesus Christ. The church is His way. I affirm it. If we're going to go forward, that's one of the things we're going to go forward on. I believe in the church. Secondly, how long have I been going? <laughs> is it too long? Can I finish? Just got one more thing to say. I've got lots more to say, but this is for one, one thing. I affirm a lifestyle of generosity. The question to me is this. How do we learn to become more generous in every way, in terms of our friendships, in terms of our giving of our talents, in terms of our money, everything? How do we learn to become more generous people? Well, I've simply discovered this in the last 10 years. You can't force people to be generous. You can't exert your will over theirs and hope that it's going to change them. It just doesn't work. So perhaps then, we should rather reflect on the things that hold us back from more radical giving. What holds us back from more radical giving? For many of us, having a lot of money, for example, is a way of getting admiration and respect of others when we seem to be successful. Uh, He's a successful guy. Money doesn't just become a thing anymore. It becomes, we subtly begin to put our hope in it and our trust in it. And actually, it becomes our salvation. And we say on the one hand, oh no, we, we trust Jesus, but actually at the end of the day, if I don't get my paycheck at the end of the month, then I'm a little bit upset. And how did Paul, this is what was fascinating to me, how did Paul help to motivate people in terms of giving to the poor and giving to the church so that stuff could be done and you could get, uh, the church could fulfill what it 
needed to do. And I want to use this phrase purposefully. Paul encouraged people to grow in the grace of giving. I want to say to you, generosity is an evidence of grace. Stinginess is not an evidence of grace. Are you a stingy person? I want to just say to you, ask God to help you to see more of his grace in your life. If you find it hard to give, all right? You know what Paul did? He didn't try and frighten people. He didn't try and say to the, to, to, to the, to the Corinthian church, I'm the apostle, you owe me. He didn't appeal to their will. He, secondly, he didn't appeal to the emotions either. How many churches do that? They do, you know, put up pictures of crying babies in Africa and famine and, and say, please give, please give. That's appealing to the emotions. That does work for a while, but Paul never did that. He never, ever did that. What did he do? Well, if you read in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9, he simply says a very simple thing to them, a profound statement. He just says this to them. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, though he was rich, for your sake became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Paul points everyone back to the gospel. And what he's saying by quoting that, he's just saying, you think on the grace of Jesus. You meditate on the gospel. You, you ask God to help you understand how much he's given for you and how fully Jesus gave everything for you. And when you've come to a deep understanding of that in your own half, it, it will be easy for you to give in the same way because it's in you. And you begin to say, Lord, all that I have is yours anyway. And I am a conduit for you and I will give it freely. And we saw a couple of weeks ago, what did Paul do when he encourages people out of marriage? Remember, I was preaching out of Ephesians 5. Um, Well, many of those Ephesian guys would have brought unhealthy attitudes of marriage into their uh, their marriages after they got saved. Well, in that society, marriage was seen largely as a business transaction. And then that's why, you know, you marry well. Make sure you marry well. Do a good business deal. And then your sexual fulfillment was a whole completely different other thing. And that's why... You just lived an immoral life on the side, but you married well. That's how it was. But Paul, he does an amazing thing. He just encourages the men, and he says, uh, in addition to that, I don't think um, in, that, in those cultures that men were encouraged to see women as friends and peers. You were just the wife in the house. And Paul encourages them. He says, no, you honor, you cherish, you love your wife as a friend. And what is the picture I said that he gives them? He says, he doesn't hold up a shining example and say, be like this person. He doesn't threaten them. He doesn't try and encourage them, just, just encourage them. He simply points them back to Jesus and he says, guys, when you just reflect on, when you meditate on, when you see how Jesus loved his church and gave himself completely for his church in order that he might win her to himself, he might word to himself, he might wash her with the water of the word, that's how you love your wife. The gospel. Not rules, the gospel. (laughs) So stinginess is broken as we look to the generosity of Christ in the gospel, where he poured out his wealth for us. You don't have to worry about money. The cross proves God's care for you. The cross has already imputed upon you a status that money can never buy. You are already a son because of what Jesus has done on the cross. Amen. You're already a son doesn't matter how much moolah you have. You will always be a son. 
And the solution of a bad marriage is to reorientate your marriage around the love of Jesus for his church. When you reorientate your marriage around the love of Jesus and you look to the cross, then not committing adultery makes sense. Why? Because Jesus didn't hold anything back on the cross for you and I. He gave himself completely. He was completely faithful to the promise that the Father had for his life, and he lived that out. And so when I look to the cross, then it makes sense to not commit adultery. To honor my wife, to love her, to cherish her as the only one. You see yourself as an animal just needing to fulfill your sexual needs, and you will go and have many affairs. But the gospel makes everything different. Changes everything. Yes, please. The point is, what makes you faithful and generous is not a huge effort to follow moral rules. All change, genuine change, comes from a deepening understanding of our salvation, and then we simply live out the change that God is doing on the inside. That's the gospel. I've quoted this before, but Martin Luther said this, the truth of the gospel is the principal article of all Christian doctrine. Most necessary it is that we know this article well, that we teach it to others, and beat it into their heads continually. And I want to say we need to beat it into our own heads continually. We need the gospel every single day of our lives. We need the grace of God every single day of our lives. This is a walk by faith that comes through the grace of God. And as we simply walk and follow the Spirit, He leads us into liberty and freedom. So, my challenge is this. As we move into the future of this church, as we move into the fullness of what God has, of course, the church needs money. And we need to be able to pay for a lot of stuff. That cannot be coerced from you, from the congregation, in any way. All I'm saying to you, gaze on the goodness of Jesus in your life and trust Him to to help you to become a generous person. (laughs) The same for me. And I'm not just talking about Money, I'm talking about serving, I'm talking about giving yourself away, I'm talking about friendship, opening your home and loving people and, and bringing the lonely in and the one who's a little bit uncomfortable and you don't quite feel, you know, I just don't connect. Well, that, that's what I'm talking about. Generosity in every way. That we become regular, happy, faithful, joyful, motivated by faith people that just give ourselves away. Surely that's the gospel. And the last thing I want to affirm this morning is a basic building block as we go forward. I affirm living a worry-free life. A worry-free life. I want to encourage you into living a worry-free life. How's that possible? Well, Philippians 4 verse 6. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving in your heart, make your requests known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart. Don't you want the peace of God to be a guard around your heart? And your mind in Christ Jesus. I was reflecting this week how much uh, after... Kurvis shared that little encouragement last week. How much we worry about what never happens. We're consumed by worrying about what most times never really happens. And we're not so hurt, hurt so much about 
what really happens, but our perception of what might happen, that's really what hurts us and holds us down. Isn't it? It's amazing, isn't it? And we worry about all sorts of things, and, and 90% of it never happens. Now, I was reading Psalm 55. It's been such an encouragement to me where David is just struggling, and he's saying, God, please. He said, it's not my enemies that are my problem. He's saying, it's the guys that I used to walk with. I went up to the temple with my brothers, and now they're fighting with me. And he pours out his heart. He says, God, help me. Help me, please. And you know what the next verse says? After he's he's poured out his heart to God, it just says, cast your burdens on the Lord, and he will sustain you. And ah, something went on in my head. Boing! Yes, that's one of the keys to living a worry-free life, is to continually be casting your burdens onto Jesus. Say, God, this is too heavy. I can't carry it, but you can. My future is too, I can't carry it, Lord, but you can. Cast your burdens onto him. Oh. Those that live a worry-free life are those that are in the habit of casting their burdens onto Jesus. <laughs> and this attitude, attitudes are nothing but habits that have become, attitudes that have become habits. Amen? So can I encourage you? Pray the right prayers. Pray the right prayers. What I mean? Well, your prayer life can simply be a list of your requirements. God, give me that. God, give me that. God, give me that. God, give me that. Help me, help me, help me. Or you can simply pray because you enjoy God. And when you pray because you enjoy God, it's life. And when you pray because you just want your request to be met, it's dry and it's dead. It produces nothing. Pray the right kind of prayers. Filled with faith filled with the goodness and the grace and the mercy of God that you know is lavished upon you. And then let pray, God, I want to see that in this community. Sorry, I'm not too loud. Sometimes I see people going, oh, like that. Okay, well, just turn me down. Hang out with the right people. Hang out with the right people. I want to be encouragement to others. I want to encourage others. I want to be encouraged. I want to dream about what is possible, what God can do. I don't want to be told all the time what can't happen. That doesn't encourage me. I need to be encouraged just like you do. I want to surround myself with men and women that have that kind of faith in their heart and say, yes, it is possible. We can see these things because God has promised it and we're going we're gonna to trust Him with all of our hearts. How many of you want people around you like that? And you know what Romans 1, it says, it says I want to impart some spiritual gift to you that Paul says that we might be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. Let this be a community that mutually encourages each other by faith, each other's faith. Hang out with people that do you good, that lift you up, that don't, drink, that don't bring you down all the time. They're faithful people. <laughs> I'm not angry, I'm actually quite happy this morning. Read the right books, for heaven's sake, read the right books. Andy is putting together a book table for the Michael Eaton Conference, and we're going to buy some books that, that you should read. Good books, not pop culture. Good books. Read the right books. Speak the right words. I'm finishing now. Let your, your speech be ministering grace. We looked at it out of that in Ephesians. Listen to the right messages. Respond with the right things. I'm finished. I'm done. Go on. We have a preferred future. What do you choose this morning? I believe in the sovereignty of God. What do you choose? The sovereign hand is under all of this, but there are some things that we can choose to change or we can say, no, this is the same.